Welcome everyone to Disunited Kingdom, question mark. Uh, I'm David Slack, and it's my great pleasure to be joined by Denise Mina and Ed Hussein to explore the origins and implications of Brexit over the next hour. We'll be taking questions in the usual way for the usual stretch of time, but let me first briefly introduce these two splendid people from the United Kingdom. Um, Oh, and I should note that sadly, Irvin Welsh wasn't able to be here, so taking his place is Denise Mina. Denise left school early, worked in a number of dead-end jobs, all of them badly, before studying at night school to get into Glasgow University Law School. She went on to study for a PhD at Strathclyde, misusing her student grant to write her first novel, and has now published 12 of them. Her latest, The Long Drop, is the true crime story of Peter Manuel, a serial killer operating in the 1950s in Glasgow. Denise's visit is supported by Creative Scotland and the British Council, and we thank them very much for that. Ed Hussein spent five years between the ages of 16 and 21 immersed in radical Islam and then rejected that life to become a critic and commentator and advisor to governments and political leaders on Islam. His latest book, The House of Islam, explores the intricacies of Islam, the inner psyche of the Muslim world. He said, what I wanted to show was that Islam is a 1,500-year-old tradition and that what this rich civilization has been reduced to in the West and in the press is only about immigration, extremism, and terrorism, that's not who we are. He has described himself as a reluctant Remainer. I think one of the most perceptive predictions I've read about Brexit was this. 75% uh, of the next Bond film will be shots of him queuing at European passport control desks. <laughs> Is there a shambles ahead? Let's see what we can make of it all. Um, Britain is scheduled to depart at 11 p.m. UK time on Friday, 29th of March, 2019. Denise, what do you think will happen? Um, I think that we will depart and it will be a shambles. I think there will be a tremendous fall in Britain's uh, international standing. I think there will not be an agreement in the Cabinet before then. And I think we will be petitioning to rejoin the EU within four years. Uh, and it'll be a gigantic waste of money. It, 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 really does, it really does feel as though there is a kind of a um, hoping for the best, but doing really not nearly enough to make things hold together. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, you know, I think it's so interesting because I think with a lot of these things, what we're dealing with are different, different logical worlds. So we have, you know, information on one side, information on the other side, and there's very little overlap. So a lot of the Brexit case was based on um, an optimism about a new future, imagine, an imagined future, what it would be like to have sovereignty. I mean, I come from a law background, so the idea of having legal sovereignty is anathema to me because we live in a globalised environment. You cannot have legal... I mean, New Zealand is a small country. You are subject to, a, you know, if you had a bigger, more powerful neighbour, um, you might be subject to a lot of the things that, that go on there. So, um, but I, you know, I mean, I think it's informational. I think that's what's really interesting about it. And I think the same applies to America, to Trump supporters, to liberals, for want of a different word, um, which is that we're all dealing with different sets of information and there's very little overlap between them and they're all spun. But with Brexit... People are imagining a new future and they're assuming a consensus because the, 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 the thing is, there is a consent. You, you know, I keep thinking about 
to re I keep thinking about the Arab Spring in Egypt, and I keep thinking there was an absolute consensus to get rid of Morsi. Absolute consensus, but there was no consensus about what to do afterwards. And it seems to me to be the perfect model for Brexit. And the people who actually won um, in the election after Morsi was deposed were the people who had administration in place to be able to fill that vacuum, and that was the Muslim Brotherhood. They got 51% of the votes. And, uh, um, and when they started to um, apply their agenda, they were overthrown in a coup paid for by America, which nobody ever talks about. But, you know, we're entering very dangerous waters because the point about the, the state the cabinet are in is that there was never a plan for afterwards and there was an assumed consensus about what to do but there wasn't a consensus. It's not going to be this boring all the way through, I promise you. No, this is <laughs> I'm this sorry. Is this is fascinating because uh, the when you think about it, the French Revolution is a perfect example of that exactly. as well. You know, everybody wanted a revolution. Nobody was quite sure what should come yeah. next. And so you end up with a reign of terror. Yes, you end up with um, a, a power vacuum, which is exactly what we have now. And we have, the, you know, the DUP in Northern Ireland essentially calling the shots for the, the entire, the rest of the UK. Um, and it, But that power vacuum, that assumed consensus is really fascinating social disruption followed by a vacuum and uh, and the consensus just isn't there as to what kind of Brexit do we want and I think we're just going to fall out. Ed, do you see things in the same frame as, as Denise? I agree on the lack of consensus as to what would, uh, um, what would follow after Brexit but I slightly diverge with you on the, on, on the future of the United Kingdom because you know, we are for all intents and purposes, not just another country. Uh, we are different, and I think it's that difference that brought about a, a sharpness of attitude towards European migrants coming in. And uh, one of the big issues was that when uh, political populists such as Nigel Farage pointed out that there might be you know, millions of Syrians and Turks you know, queuing up to coming into the UK, uh, or when in the previous year, I think in Germany in 2015, there were, there were over a million uh, migrants that had uh, been given political and other refuges, which was the right thing to do in the, cli in the climax of war uh, in Syria and then Turkey taking in so many migrants. But what happened was the, I mean, I think it's fair to say Nigel Farage is on the far right. I think you could uh, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want the festival to be sued by his uh, <laughs> band of lawyers, so I consult a lawyer before I say so. <laughs> so he is the, arriving on the next bus, I might point out. <laughs> so, so that kind of far-right populism uh, didn't play well, and I think some of the people that voted for leaving the European Union were part of that cohort. But of the 17.4 17 million people that voted, I'm reluctant to say that they were all yeah. on the wrong side of history. Clearly, they were not. Um, and you know, as someone who voted for Remain, I have to now, and I think the rest of the country now, has to take account of the fact that we are Democrats, that this is a democratic outcome, and however much we dislike it, we've got to honor that outcome. Mm -hmm. And hence, the process is now in motion. And I think in, in the long term, Yes, in the early days, I felt exactly as you did, that, you know, uh, that, that this was not a positive decision. But I think as we've seen the last year, year and a half, two years play out, I mean, unemployment levels are at record low, lows. We've created three million new jobs. And after all is said and done, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, is venerated across the world. Uh, it's an English-speaking country. It has its own laws, its own liberties that, are, that resonate around the world, Exhibit A. Um, so I, I'm much more optimistic about the future. And we've seen, well, I mean, yes, Theresa May may not have been the best vocal leader for it, but she is a process-driven individual. Mm -hmm. And 
I think we've got the right person to do the process-related job. My concern is what happens after, uh, after we, we, we do exit, and then it's a question of what kind of leadership the country sees. Are we looking at a Boris Johnson-type individual or a, or a Jacob Rees-Mogg type individual, mm -hmm. or God forbid, someone else? So I mean, that's the real concern as to who come in, comes into power. Will we have another referendum four years from now? The current trajectory indicates that possibly not, because even the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn has been reluctant to call for a second referendum or a rerun of the last referendum. Um, unless, of course, uh, there's a new Labour leadership and a newer generation that's controlled by the younger generation that yes. feels deeply disgruntled that the, uh, that the people above 40 basically um, uh, voted them out for, for a future in the European Union. And if that cohort comes to power in the Labour Party and then wishes to hold another referendum to re-enter, perhaps. But every, every indication now seems to be that... Um, including the Labour Party, that we're broadly content with, with, with Brexiting and making the best of free trade deals and new relationships with, with uh, other countries around the world. Is, is it nonetheless risky in the sense that no matter how well venerated uh, the UK is and how, how much the, the EU might want to find some new a relationship with the UK, there is also this, this jeopardy that the EU is conscious of that anything that makes it um, tolerable for UK makes it far too easy for everybody else mm -hmm. to find the exit door? Yes, yeah, so, but this is this is an interesting question, and you're absolutely right that there is this fear uh, in exit polls, well, not exit polls, but poll, polling data cited by Nigel Farage. So I don't know how accurate they are, but on the, on the morning of Brexit, he was talking about the Greeks, the Danes, the Italians, uh, and others w wanting to perhaps leave the European Union. Now, uh, if you look at the, the, the rhetoric out of France and uh, Marie Le Pen, she's been very Eurosceptic in many, many senses. Now, I, I'm, I'm all for unions of nations, and I, one of the things I call for in my book is, a, is the Middle East embracing something like the European Union, because for all of its flaws and all of its bureaucratic heavy-handedness and the lack of transparent, transparency and democracy, the European Union has been a peace project. Mm -hmm. It's the first time in 70 years, in, in, in many uh, thousands of years, that we've got peace on, on, on the European mainland. And that's laudable, and that's mm. worth paying every price for. Um, but I, I, I would put the ball back in the court of Brussels and Strasbourg, that if you can't hold a European project together because one <clears throat> eccentric nation exited, mm -hmm. uh, because we always saw ourselves as different. We were reluctant Europeans from the outset. Yeah. We, we never saw ourselves as fully European. Mm. So if we've exited... Perfidious, you might say. Yeah, but, <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, we were America's agents. Yeah. We were Americans advanced in, in Europe. We were forced there, Edward Heath was, and others were forced to be there for the Americans because you know, we wanted to be more influential on behalf of the Americans. In an interesting way, you know, in a room full of businessmen or women, British people ordinarily find themselves closer to, say, the Canadians, the, the Americans and others rather than closer to the Europeans. So if the Europeans can't hold this important union together because the Brits have existed, there are much deeper problems for the Europeans in terms of what it means to be European today. And I think that's a much bigger issue, mm -hmm. that Europe is unable to define itself today. And therefore, when migrants arrive and newcomers arrive in countries such as Germany now, we're seeing a backlash against... Uh, you know, third, fourth generation Germans because their ancestors came from Turkey or second generation those who've come from other countries. That's a much deeper issue, that if Europe cannot define what it is, who it is, and cannot embrace democracy and hold together 20-plus nations, how, we're in for much worse. How do you think, assess the performance of the EU, Denise? Sorry? How do you assess the performance of the EU? I think that there's the, a the fundamental problem with the EU, which is that it is neoliberal. It is essentially neoliberal, and it is... 
Um, and that is really problematic, and that is the essence of the problem. Like you're saying, you know, there are good cogent reasons, good cogent arguments for leaving the EU. And for me, the most cogent is that we do not have control over our own labour laws. So really, there's no point in campaigning, petitioning, because you're essentially bound by EU legislation on labour laws. Um, and that, that was a, an argument that I've, I had a lot of sympathy with um, during the Brexit debate. But I think actually, more lightly, I think Five Star in Italy are, are I think they're going to mm. leave the EU. And I think really they're going to kick the door on the way out because they have a flood of migrants coming in. There are so many parallels yeah. between uh, the, the waves of migrants coming from Spain during the Spanish Civil War into France waves of Jewish migrants coming into France from pogroms in the East. And it was, the, the, the situation was almost exactly the same. The difference was the population was much, much poorer. And I think we need to look to parallels there for, to, um, for a model of how not to deal with it. Now, exactly the same thing happened. The right rose, fascists rose, newspapers were established, and their essential agenda was, you know, the Spanish are all thieves. It was like a quarter of a million Spanish refugees came from Spain into southern France at the time. Uh, the government were um, expelling people. The, of course, the great irony of Brexit is that we do need migrants coming to Britain, particularly in care work. And where they are going, because they can't come from Europe now, they're going to be coming from Africa. I mean, that is absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm actually quite excited about this. <laughs> One of the few things that makes me positive about Brexit is there, is, there are going to be a huge wave because we are a, an aging population. We need people to come in and do care work. Uh, these people are going to be here for a long time. They're going to be people who have, you know, colonial links with Britain. They're going to be members of the Commonwealth. Um, that's fascinating. What that's going to do to the population. And this is also part of the problem, I'm afraid, because, you know, people like my friends Dan Hannan, who advocated as a member of the European Parliament, who advocated for uh, the Commonwealth to have more access yeah. to the United Kingdom and to provide that uh, labour shortage. In their minds, it all sounds great. But to the little old lady in Sedgefield that had a problem with a white Christian Polish nurse, yeah. isn't it going to take well to a you know, black Nigerian Muslim woman coming in? You know, oh, so we've, we've got these racial undertones that we don't yeah. want to address. But so I, I don't what that think does. we should pander to that. I think we're just going to have to deal with that. And I, I, I really do think racism is intractable. It is, uh, you know... I think if people have a good reason to stop being racist, they, that that is what, if, if it suits them to stop being racist, that's when they really address their racism. When they have friends, when they have contact. In fact, you know, the people who are most anti-migrant in Britain are people who have no contact with migrants. Mm. That's classic. You know, people see, I mean, even small things like, you know, British, a lot of British high streets are full of Polish shops. And the reason they are full of Polish shops is because Polish people are recent migrants and do not have cars to get to out-of-town supermarkets. Mm. So they take over all these boarded-up shops and they open shops. If that is even explained, people don't understand that. They just look at the visual of it. Um, so, you know, people need a reason to be sympathetic. And I think those really intimate relationships where you know, migrants are coming in and fulfilling really important roles... I think that could be the real challenge to it. And where, where does the media fit in this? Because uh, on the one hand, as, as you say, people who have uh, actual con connection and engagement have an entirely different experience. But I'm wondering, oh, I have two questions. One is um, directly relating to that, which is are media uh, fostering people's idea of, of what these, pe these 
people, these, these, these othered people coming uh, into the country are. And in, in, the, in the longer sweep, 10, 20, 30 years, have, uh, I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the Murdoch press, have um, newspapers been giving people an impression that is misleading? Um, and, 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 and if so, how, how deleterious has that been, do you think? Hugely. Boris Johnson was the European um, correspondent for The Telegraph, was it? And consistently put stories in, in um, was, I don't know, was it The Times? I can't remember, but he, he was it The Telegraph? And consistently put out stories about EU regulations that were nonsense, that were lies. So he has been campaigning, and I don't honestly think he has the integrity to be anti-EU. I think he's just a chancer. And, and I will fight him for your entertainment if needs be. Um, <laughs> I don't like that man. And uh, um, so this, he has made this. I would purpose? fight him. I would. I would. And I, I think I would win actually. But because um, <laughs> uh, I'm wee, but I'm angry. But uh, but so he's been planting anti-EU stories, and this is almost his project. The, the the whole Brexit issue. Why is it Brexit? Why is it not something else? Why is it? you know, leaving the European Union is almost a hobby horse and it has become something to make people angry about. And I really wonder if, you know, 20 years of fairly stable government, of gradual social progress, of gradual social integration, if this is a backlash to all of that and people were just looking for something to be very, people were looking for some sort of social rupture to make them feel alive. I just don't believe that, I don't think there was an, because you know, we had two referendums in a row about EU membership. I mean, it's pretty decisive. People are very much in favor of it. You know, my generation have grown up in the EU. We, we are EU citizens, whether we're Brexit or Remain, we are EU. And things like the passport issue, we are so used to being able to spawn in and out of countries. You know, more people have, um, emigrated to Europe than have come into Britain. I mean, that, that you know, those people are not going to get their um, pensions. Their pensions are not going to work. They're not going to be able to get visas to come back. You know, they're not, people are not thinking it's a ludicrous decision. And, and your point was well made earlier about the, the, the free movement of people and, 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 and refugees, and, and that this is a continuing sweep of history. America essentially was populated by people, um, Europe's um, um, teeming masses going somewhere else. And, and, and I wonder if, is our problem in the 20th century that as welfare states have been created, that free movement has been impeded simply because states can't contemplate providing uh, a care free, free But we can, care because yeah. rich people move around all the time. Yeah. And rich people basically, you know, being um, a citizen of a particular territorial country does not apply to them. So we do tolerate the idea of people moving around and we're kind of like, he's got his own jet, isn't that brilliant? Is it brilliant? All his money's in the Cayman Islands, doesn't pay any tax. You know, somebody actually tweeted a picture of an advert in a BA magazine, an in-flight magazine, and it was, you could buy citizenship in the Cayman Islands um, if you had enough money. So we're not bothered about movement of people certain types of people, no. it's, uh, you know, rich people. We're not bothered about them. We're not bothered about them paying tax. We're losing more in the people who are not paying tax than anyone claiming benefit or misusing the health service. Is it, so, so what's see, that about? See, you know? The world which we occupy, which is a cosmopolitan, to some degrees elite, uh, you know, we're, we're comfortable in David Goodhart's language in being anywhere 
you know, we're internationalists, you know, we have reservations about what the nation state means and, you know, sovereignty, you alluded to that earlier as a difficult concept for you as a lawyer. I mean, I get that on an intellectual level for us, you know, you're all readers, you're engaged in the space of ideas. So you're part of that elite, whether you like it or not, I'm afraid, the fact that you're here. You know. So now, but out there, there's another country. And I went out to that country. I mean, when I lived in New York, we used to say, you know, people in New York never leave New York because they'd have to go and live in America. You know? yeah. So, yeah. so th there's a reason why we don't leave yeah. our large, comfortable cities because we'd have to go and live in England and they talk about fly or over Scotland. Sta fly over yeah. states, don't they? And it's there that the Trumps are emerging, and it's there I'm afraid that Brexit was decided. I'll give you a quick anecdote. I, I, I worked for advise Tony Blair uh, after he left government after the Iraq War. Um, for, for <laughs> <laughs> before you kind of lob that on me, before you lob that on me, for about three years, and it, it was during the the Brexit time that I mean I was seeing him on a daily basis and we're talking about what was going on and he kept saying and you know, David Cameron would phone him and they would talk and the constant conversation was oh don't worry the British population the British people are rational people they're logical people they won't do anything as silly as leaving the European Union it jeopardizes their bottom line and we all kind of believed that yeah. in Westminster and SW1 and you know if Tony's won three general elections if anyone knows the British people this man does um, and so okay so maybe we've got this in the bag and, and, and then his own constituency, you know, County Durham, Sedgefield votes. I mean, this is a constituency that's benefited from the European Union, that stands to continue to draw investment and uh, other subsidized uh, forms of revenue for the local people. And they vote at 60% to leave. And this is, this is the constituency that made Tony Blair. So I went up to Sedgefield because I was genuinely baffled. It just didn't make any sense. So I went to Sedgefield and met with... Uh, lots of people in, in various kind of in, in pubs, in uh, various setups. And what I came away with was, was one conversation that kept ringing in my head. And I tried to make sense of it with Tony, and I mean, he couldn't, because fundamentally, there, there isn't much sense to be made out of this. Mm. this. This lady, she was Welsh. She came to Sedgefield in her 20s. Now she's in her 60s. So she's not necessarily a northerner or a lady from Sedgefield. She'd voted for Tony as a local MP on more than four occasions. She believes in the European narrative, but doesn't like what's happened to Sedgefield. So what's happened to Sedgefield? Oh, the local pub is closed down. Uh, the, the church is no longer frequented. We've got too many migrants. New houses are being built, and the migrants will take them in hospital. In the hospital, we're being looked after by foreigners. Our schools are taken over by foreigners. So I went to the hospital. I went to the school. It's still 90% majority local white dominated. But there is this imagination which puts, points to your point about the media. There's a, there's a kind of speculation on television, on, in, in, in the Daily Mail and whatnot, that the country's been taken over by foreigners. So on the one hand, we try to make sense of it, and we can't. Because my, my point is that there's something very visceral, something very emotional yeah. at place, especially up north, away from our cosmopolitan yeah. kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural restaurants and cuisines where we, which we all enjoy. But there is something else going on outside of the country, which outside of these major cosmopolitan hubs, I'm afraid, that it's just difficult to kind of grasp mentally. Can, can, can you bring it to insecurity? Is, is, is that the, the, the nub of it? I think it's grievance. Yes. I think it's a culture of grievance. What are we annoyed about? We're annoyed about straight bananas. We're annoyed because that was one of the things that, mm. that was one of Boris Johnson's big stories was about uh, you would not let you sell... Crooked bananas. Crooked bananas, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's about grievance, and I think it's a, a sort of general sense that um, that something is going wrong. And like you're saying, in, uh, you know, Alex Salmond's constituency voted Brexit because of fisheries. Uh, 
Newcastle voted Brexit. It's not all about migrants. It's so many different small grievances and a kind of whispering campaign of, we can make this massive change and address this issue. There's no causal relationship between them. Actually leaving the EU is going to be worse for the fisheries. Mm, yeah. um, and, you know, and actually, I think it might be worse for controlling migration. Um, I think it might be a very, very bad season if you're a committed racist, um, if that's your thing. Do you know what I mean? But I mean, also, I think we shouldn't other people who voted Brexit. And we shouldn't talk about them as if they are, you know, idiots, because they're not. They have, they have good cogent arguments, and we should listen to them. And I think, you know, as I say, you know, um, having control over labour laws, that's important. One thing I heard a lot was about London housing market. And I don't think that's really been, lots of people had to move out of London because they can't afford to live there anymore because the houses are being bought as investments by overseas um, who don't really live there. I think that's really interesting, but I think it is a big baggy bundle of grievances that have all been attached to the EU because that is a major change people can make. And, and you know, you know, could, I don't could, think it's one could you thing. maybe argue that the, 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 this is the presentation of the bill for Thatcherism and free market and 30 years of neoliberalism, but actually someone else is, taking, is being presented with the bill? I think that's exactly right. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I think, uh, you know, the fact that um, people in employment have very few rights. I mean, compared to America, obviously, we have a lot of rights, but, you, you know, very few rights. There, you know, people have stopped joining unions because they just feel it's the, there's no point. People don't know how to make themselves heard. And I think for a lot of people, yeah. this was a way of making themselves heard. And I think also there was a lot of misreporting about the um, polls. So the last poll I heard before I fell asleep was 38% uh, for... Um, and, and I slept like a baby that night. And uh, <laughs> so obviously very, very wrong. So I think there was a feeling that we would, this would never happen, this couldn't happen. And, but I think there are a lot of different grievances and we should look at those individual grievances. Some of them are absolutely right. And some of them are just, you know, people of a certain age. And these are not poor people. This is the same myth that you have with Trump. Mm. It's middle-class homeowners that are voting for these things. It's not poor people, it's not disaffected iron workers, it's not miners, it's, as a very general rule, it's white people with a bit of money, pensions coming up, um, and is that right? Well, I, I no, tell me, that. maybe I, that's I, I, not so right. This is, this is really interesting, because um, in Brooklyn, um, if you know London, the East End, you know, Jewish migrants before them, Huguenots from France, and, and, and now uh, dominated primarily by people from Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, and lots of people from Bangladesh or Bengalis. Two things really struck me, because uh, um, I have family there and I go there from time to time. One was seeing that my parents' generation, who had uh, started to buy homes, thanks to Margaret Thatcher, um, and now in a position to rent those homes out, were, were, were saying in, among themselves that no Polish people so migrants have come on and brought homes, and now they don't want another generation of because you know, too many Polish people live in one bedroom together. And I found that abhorrent, that you could basically burn the bridge behind you. It gets worse. During Brexit, I was reliably told by people who had set up something called Bengalis for Britain that, that were voting against Italian Bengalis coming into the local area. Italian Bengalis? Italian Bengalis coming into the local area and taking their jobs at Sainsbury's and Asda. So I'm afraid there is this whole... It's kind of, like it, bigotry. No, but <laughs> it, it exists. There is this migrant yeah. complex that once you've integrated and done well and 
You don't want anyone else coming you know, FOB, fresh off the boat. So there is this, I mean, it, 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 yes, it's the middle class homeowners, but you know, don't forget there was an entire, I mean, Nigel Farage often talked about the fact that the old Labour vote had come over to UKIP because they saw that white working class people were somehow left behind and uh, others had done well and the children of migrants had done well and uh, everyone came from somewhere except the white working class. Mm. They didn't have a nice story to tell at school. Can you know, we talk about UKIP for a moment, uh, having mentioned Farage? Uh, um, uh, is there anything about that that's different from what we've just been speaking about, or is that a, a symptom of those, 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 uh, those things, do you think? In, in other words, I, I think what I'm particularly wondering is, I, I sense always a great deal of cynicism in Nigel Farage and in UKIP as well, perhaps. Um, am I reading that correctly, or do you, how, how do you see that, that phenomenon emerging? What, what drove it? Well, I think, like in a lot of places, people are very tired of the two-party system, and particularly when there's a period of consensus politics, people get very, very tired of it. And um, uh, I think UKIP, I never, I mean, I think it was just a party for racists, and it's, I mean, it's, it is in massive decline now. That's what's really interesting about it, is it really is a burst flush. Um, but I think there is a real place for third and fourth parties. I mean, I think traditional politics is not very exciting. I mean, it really is more of the same. It's the same with the SNP in Scotland. It is like people are just want something different, and they want to be excited about politics. And, well, we'll try our best, but basically it's the same mince and potatoes you had yesterday, that's not very exciting. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, got, were drawn into UKIP. A lot of them were from the Tories, which is why we had the referendum in the first place. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them were from Labour because they, they wanted a more left-wing party. They wanted a more radical party. I think it is about a taste for... Because they didn't have a manifesto for a long time. Their manifesto was... Brexit, that was it. Yeah. So, you know, what is what is the point in joining UKIP now other than as a... Pro it was a protest vote, I think. Yeah, Do you think that? But, you but, more, but, know no, more about yeah. it No, I, I agree entirely with everything you've said, but there was something about Nigel Farage, the man, more than UKIP, the party. People connected with Nigel Farage. He would smoke out in public in a way that other politicians had stopped smoking because it was an incorrect, politically correct thing to do, you know? So he, he, he would be out there, you know, having a fag, and people liked that. He would wear, wear, wear tweed jackets, and there was a part of the country that resonated with that. He'd always be seen having a pint in a way that you wouldn't see uh, David Cameron or Tony Blair be seen on a regular basis down the pub having a pint. And he spoke in a way, he, he, he awoke something inside the British people against the Germans. He brought back something against the French, French despite having a name like Farage and being married to a <laughs> European lady. You know, so he, 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 really, he really got under people's skin and, and, and being in, and by the way, he stood for becoming a member of the, of, of the House of Commons on seven occasions and he failed. Yeah. But he's successful in the European Parliament because he's constantly hammering the Germans, the French, and people liked that. There was something, something very English that, that in, the, in, the, in the psyche of kind of, you know, we alone stood against the rest of Europe in the darkest hour. He, he, he sipped into some of that. And I think all of that came together. And sadly, I mean, I'm not blaming Angela Merkel, nor am I blaming the Syrians, but what happened that year, I think it was 2006 or 2005, mm -hmm. you know, a million migrants coming in, and rightly so, and we, all the other countries should have taken their burden Can too, by the way. refugees? Okay, refugees, newcomers, they, yeah, whatever, newcomers yeah. into, into Europe, you know, uh, that had a major hit uh, because he, he was then able to say, 
look what's happened in Germany. You know, the, the, the German fascists were on the rise. There were, yeah. there, were, there were incidents in Cologne and there were racist incidents in other, Dusseldorf and other parts of Germany. And there was a genuine fear that if we continued down the free migration and the free movement of people route, more people would come to England. Well, the Turks have put up with three million yeah. new, new, uh, new arrivals. Yeah. Um, so I'm afraid it's more Nigel Farage, the man, the new the party, because without him, the party's almost collapsed I now. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I think it is something about him, something about um, uh, being disagreeable, because he was very disagreeable, and he would go on um, question time, and he would say, no, you're wrong, and, you know, he would make another point, and he always spoke to the audience. I thought that was really interesting. You know, he would always speak to the audience in very short sentences, kind of rally talk, you know, very rousing. And he would say things that were blatantly untrue with great conviction. And I don't think he thought he was lying at that stage. I just think he, he was a confident idiot, which, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I think he is now cynically lying. I think he's broke and he's looking for a way of making money and he's aligned himself with Bannon and he keeps coming out with lines that you know Bannon's written them. Um, but I think at that time, he was just a really confident... And there is something about public schoolboys that really telling you what to do that, that really resonate with the British public. How, however, did he find anything in common with Donald Trump, I wonder? <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm intrigued, actually, about both in, on, in, in terms of somebody like uh, Trump and, and, and Farage, um, that it, you get the sense that certain, um, a certain kind of person has been sullenly resentful but keeping their counsel they now feel that they have permission to ex uh, express uh, points of view that were for a long time mm -hmm. uh, unacceptable. Do you, do you get that sense? Do you, and do you, do you think this in some way ties in with that, that, that rise of um, the uh, hate speech in Europe that you, you mentioned a moment ago? This uh, Brexit process certainly gave permission to people to be more sexist, to be more racist, to be more anti-European in public, and to be on the side of fascists without any shame or fear or any moral compunction. Mm -hmm. That was not the case before the, the Brexit uh, vote happened. And we saw, I mean, the statistics bear it out. We, we saw an increase against attacks on migrants, uh, sorry, forgive me, newcomers. People who are visibly different. No, just say whatever you want. It's not for me. It's not for me to. No, 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 people to who are visibly different, women who wore, who wore hijab. I mean, look, I, we can disagree with all of that. And in, in a free society, we should be able to talk about it and question it. But you don't then attack the individuals. And that I thought was a very shameful outcome in our country for a period of time. That's now gone back to rates of normality. But I wouldn't hold my breath because we, we have given permission to a, to a form of bigotry. Uh, and it's not just in the UK, it's now across Europe, I'm afraid. And it's no accident that in countries such as Austria, to some extent Germany, France, you're seeing fascist parties return with you know, voting margins at 20% and above, um, even in France of all countries. Germany, indeed, we're seeing protests now. So Brexit brought something out. And that's why I think it's important that we, we address it. It's important that the message goes out from the UK that Brexit isn't about fascism and racism, that we continue to be an open country, that we do indeed welcome the, the, the newcomers from Africa and elsewhere that we wish to see. And yes, the argument was made that you know, geography should not be the only reason why people can come to the UK more easily. We should invite people from India and Australia, New Zealand, Nigeria, Pakistan and whatnot. Well, let's, let's see this happen. Um, 
and, and when that happens, I mean, I'm confident on the whole, I, I don't see the UK on the whole, you know, the, the vast majority of people, I do not see them as racist in any way whatsoever. I think that unlike most of the other European countries, if you wake up in, 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 in the UK, you will see kind of brown and black faces on television. They're at the highest echelons of business. Our home secretary is someone from Muslim descent. I mean, the, the list is long. In Scotland, you've done a much better job. And I see young Muslims and others very proud of being Scottish and their other identities in a way that Europe struggles. So I think we're in a position um, to shine a light and lead the way uh, and, and keep the European project on course mm. uh, in, in, in every way we can, despite having given, given license to some of the ugliness. I suppose the question this, this poses is, once this gathers, once this flame, this small flame grows larger, can you, quit, can you readily extinguish it? Or, or are we dealing with something that might run out of control? Do, if we look at what happened in the 30s, it's, it's pretty dispiriting. Are, are we in a different circumstance here now? I think we are. I think, interestingly, the, the, uh, the fact that it happened, if it hadn't happened, I think we could be looking at um, a rise of fascism in Britain. I think the fact that Brexit has happened, there is something about voting on an imagined future compared to a tawdry present. So Brexit is now the tawdry present and it is real and we have to, you know, um, do this bit of admin and we have to do that bit of admin. You have to queue up to get your pans passport stamped. You have to do... Making it real, actually, I think, has diffused that. And it's interesting that you think that, that it, you know, Scotland is more inclusive because I don't think it is. But I think the anti-Brexit vote in Scotland did not give people who were overtly racist license to go about um, parading it around and making statements in public and attacking women in public. But I think... One of the really interesting, you know, we have this thing every couple of years on Scottish television, is Scotland racist? And they have a panel of white people, usually men. <laughs> and they ask them, is Scotland racist? And, Scot and they say, you know, we have a history of actually going into other countries. And, you know, we might be a little bit, if you ask anyone who's brown from, a, you know, like fourth or fifth generation Scottish people, they'll tell you Scotland is incredibly racist and they get racist comments all the time. But it's, 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 it's not licensed the way it is because no, of the see, I, I, I find it baffling because, sorry to indulge on Scotland for a bit, but when I go to Scotland, I was in Edinburgh just uh, about four weeks ago and I meet, say, Scottish Muslims. They're wearing kilts. Yeah. And they talk of themselves as Scottish. Yeah. Down south, most Muslims would say, yes, I'm British and I'm a British Muslim, but would be reluctant to say I'm an English Muslim. Yeah. So there's something there about Scotland that's able to absorb. And that's the point and, I'm trying uh, to make. Um, um, a Sikh temple was set fire to in Edinburgh a week ago. Okay, and well. It, it was burnt to the ground. <laughs> Swings and roundabouts, you know. <laughs> um, but I think very interesting, sorry, just very interestingly on that particular thing, my family are Irish Catholic. So we came to Scotland and we're not welcome and we're very much, you know, my uncles had a name in the house, Austin and Liam. And when they went to work, they called themselves John and other Protestant names. Uh, so we already have experience of this. And I think the fact that the Irish Catholic diaspora are very vocal about their experience and that we have drawn so many parallels, particularly with young Muslims coming to our country, I think that's very important to keep pointing out that we are now assimilated and exactly the same thing is happening to this generation and we're with these people so they have a bit more backup. You know? I'd just say one other thing, very, very quickly. I mean, you, I accept all of that, but it's just worth bearing in mind that 
as much as we beat up, beat up on the UK, it was one of the countries that was the most open, the most multicultural at the very outset. And just this year, I mean, if you still, if you still think the UK has a, yes, I mean, racism exists everywhere. Try Turkey, try most of the Middle East, try India, the caste system, horrendous. But uh, all of that said, I mean, I, I just say two words to you and ask you to reflect on the, on the welcome and the range of celebration around these two words and uh, across the UK and, uh, and the wider English speaking world and beyond, Meghan Markle. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Impossible 10 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago, but now celebrated and wi widely accepted. So there's something And it's really pace. significant. I'm not a royalist, but it is really significant. It's very significant that she's there. And, um, you know, I, you could feel the press building her up. And I thought, oh, they're going to kill her. Uh, you know, they're going to crucify her because they were talking about what she was so great and she was so kind and she had no past and all this kind of thing. And then, you know, they stopped doing that. That's amazing. That is amazing. But, that but, also, is amazing. but, but, but also, I mean, the, the, the mayor of London, the elected mayor of London is a Muslim brown guy. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the great British Bake Off, you know, the, the white middle class ladies voting in a brown lady with a headscarf. Yeah. I mean, what more does England have to do to show that the, its bones are not racist? Yeah. It might have a kind of the occasional problem and it's open to addressing it by, by far better than the French, by the way. Um, and the Germans, oh for that my matter. God, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> so, what about a United Kingdom then, and 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 a Scotland that has been wanting to to leave? Where, what do you think um, the prospects are for staying united? And well, and what do you want to happen to Scotland? Personally, I was a reluctant no, just like you were a reluctant Remainer. I can see all the problems with uh, you know, but I was very aware that, uh, like that, we were dealing with different sets of facts. From my point of view, I thought it would be an economic catastrophe, and it wouldn't be an economic catastrophe for middle class people, it would be an economic catastrophe for people with nothing. And we have tremendous poverty in Scotland. And um, uh, I thought it was a chance we didn't need to take. Um, the Brexit vote happened, and oh, it's so interesting. You know, there was a, a lot of people in Scotland who wanted to remain within the UK but also wanted the rest of Britain to vote for Brexit very much because they thought that would lead to a second independence referendum. It's it's just such a, yeah, it's a very, very tense. <laughs> yes, in fact, in fact, one particular guy who's like very well-known comedian uh, was, you know, campaigning and, and he actually tweeted, yes, because he just couldn't, you know, he's so happy because they, they thought that was going to lead to. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen, but I think that we're dealing with different sets of facts. Now, after the Brexit, during the Indie Ref, you were not allowed to say we will not be allowed in Europe. If you said that, you just got abuse. Um, you know, there are separatist movements in Belgium, in, you know, Spain, that, that the, the members of the European Union would have to veto our membership because they cannot allow that, allow an independent country to join the EU. After the, <laughs> the Brexit vote, Spain issued a statement saying, that they would no longer veto our membership. Now, that is the first time that was really reported in the Scottish press. I find that fascinating. Um, and it was because it was a positive story about how great it would be to be independent. But there are a lot of other countries in Europe with separatist movements. I don't think we would be allowed into the EU. And I think the Scottish government, the SNP government, are very aware of the fact that, you know, it would be a catastrophe with a catastrophe nailed to the back of it. Um, so I think they're very reluctant to call another indie ref. Um, but I'm, I, you know, I thought we would become independent. I thought Brexit wouldn't happen. So 
I'm always wrong. I mean, I'm always wrong, so who knows? <laughs> but, um, I, I, I will open up for uh, questions in a moment. I just want to uh, ask a couple. I, there's one I'm intrigued to ask you, uh, because I just love, and you, you, you reached back to the Huguenots already and Farage. Um, you, you wrote that during the Reformation, what might be considered the first Brexit, uh, England was uh, isolated by Europe and, yeah, and uh, yeah. embraced by the, uh, the Ottomans. Um, uh, do, is that a, well? I'm interested in, in, in hearing you expand upon that, and and and, and um, whether in fact a Brexit is a thing that happens again and again in history. But also, is there a, a, some sort of proposition here for the UK to just do something entirely different and find common cause with other pe other nations and other blocks? Is is that realistic? Yeah, we're an island nation. We've always been a kind of a bit of an outcast, outcast, an eccentric kind of. Uh, we'll, we'll go find our way in the world, you know, whether it's navigation, whether it's building empires, whether it's trade. You know, we were out there, and I think uh, there's a spirit of independence, whether it's Magna Carta, that, where people stand against the monarchy, or at least the, the nobility did, um, or whether it's King Henry VIII saying, screw you, to the Pope, and saying, I will... I would just go and marry a second lady and I'll justify it on the basis of scripture because he used the book of the, the, the Old Testament to say, you know, a, a Jewish brother could not marry his, uh, his, his widow, yeah, his brother's widow, having done that 10 years and then suddenly realized I need an exit. So he goes and finds an exit from the Bible. But, but he did that successfully uh, to, the, to the extent that he was able to set up subsequently a Church of England. But when, when, when the Tudors, and in particular uh, his daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, was expelled or excommunicated by the, the French and certainly the Spaniards and the Italians, who did she turn to? She turned to the Ottoman Turks, the, the, the Moroccan emirs, and the, the, the Persian Shah. So our instinct was to just bypass Europe and go to the rest of the world. And we've done that you know, successfully throughout the 1600s. And I think right now, you know, whether we like it or not, we are where we are. And those of us who didn't want to go, out, you know, support Brexit, we've, we, you know, we did our bit. But now we, we have to honor the democratic process because the idea of democracy and honoring that is much more important than, uh, than, than trying to undo that because that has much more dangerous consequences yeah. for, 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 for civilization and the meaning of democracy itself. Because this is something we've inherited from Greek and Roman times onwards. So it's just got to be upheld and honored for what it is. And I think as a result, you know, what we're seeing already is a great amount of warmth in countries that I know particularly well. I mean, the Gulf, in Turkey, uh, certainly in India, and most certainly in the United States of America. Um, and we've got to see America beyond Trump. I mean, Trump says, you know, God forbid it's got six years tops now. Uh, you know, who knows? But um, we'll see what happens in the midterms. Yeah, well, it depends on the Democrats put up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we've been through this before. We, we've got the stamina. You're seeing a creativity and a zeal in the country. Um, you know, when I speak to business leaders in New York, they often say, you know, with all of the problems, um, there's no way that we're going to set up shop in either France or Germany. For maybe some of the concerns that you have around labour legislation, the UK is still a preferred location. So. On balance, I'm optimistic, and I think you know we will we will we will come through this, and we will do we will do well. What, what do you think of Denise's uh, scenario? We discussed right at the outset of maybe you you uh, you give it about four years, and and and, I mean, and, and be, then there's a revisiting. There, there will be a momentum, especially in the Liberal Democrats, and perhaps in some some segments of the Labour Party, 
that will want us to rejoin the European Union. There's no um, uh, scenario of that happening under Jeremy Corbyn, because I think he was a Brexiteer at heart. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why the Labour Party wasn't able to mobilise the vote, because Jeremy just did not connect with, uh, with, with because he, you know, his track record has been one off speaking against the European Union. So after Jeremy Corbyn, if there is a Labour Party that's not fractured, you know, currently it's looking as though it might fracture, if it doesn't fracture and the young momentum youth who are now there uh, most basically taking the party over, if they say that they want to rejoin the, rejoin the European Union, then there might be a Labour Party that campaigns to join the European Union. But that would really fly in the face of democratic process. Yeah. And that's the difficulty that we have made. You know, uh, we are one of the oldest democracies in the world. The way we behave does matter. Other countries do look to us. And I think what's happened has happened. And for the sake of democracy and stability, we have got to make a good job of it. And the Labour Party and others, uh, I, I trust, will get behind the process and will not want to see or will not want to argue on the back foot of saying that, you know, the Conservatives will say, you're undermining the democratic process. It's a bad place to be in the, for yeah. the British Labour Party to say, actually, yes, we are, you know, so... At the same time, there were two referendum votes on the EU in the 70s. So, that you know, there is history of, you know, another generation coming. And it is generational. We have to, you know, I mean, it really is generational. And, but I, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's really important that... It's not what I want, but it's what we decided, and that's the nature of collective decision-making. I think referenda are so problematic. One of the problems with both the, this Indy Ref and Brexit was everyone was answering a different question. Mm. That's what's problematic about referenda, is that they're so vague, and we don't really know what the question is, and that's what's become clear over the past year and a half. And it, and it was a throwaway accident, really, by the look of it, by Cameron, wasn't it? it, it or, or did he just think he was, he was asking the wrong, a question he thought he was going to get the answer? He just thought he was going to win. Yeah. He's a winner. Oh, right, OK. That's, that's his approach, that I'm a winner, right. you know, because um, it's, it's the Etonian confidence that you get. Yeah. I can't lose. You know, I went yeah. to Eton. <laughs> of course I would become prime minister. Of course I'm going to win the referendum. Yeah. And if Tony Blair tells me, I mean, you know, I can't possibly be wrong, there was that fundamental uh, confidence Seriously. there. You know, but to be fair to David, he might have swung it. But I think a couple of things happened in the last two weeks that really moved, moved the needle. Um, you know, the... sorry. Yeah. Yeah, there was that. Yeah. But there was also the kind of three hundred and fifty million, whatever it is, they were kind of saying that they would give to the NHS on the bus. On the bus. No. Yeah. At the same time, there were other things like the murder of Joe Cox yeah. by a member mm -hmm. of the English yeah. Defence. That should have swung it. But it didn't. And yeah, that was yeah. the real heartbreaker was it didn't. People, people didn't really care that a mm. sitting MP was murdered by yeah. a right-wing fascist. People didn't really care. And you still have to remind people that mm. that happened. And it happened in that time frame. Was it a week before the yeah. vote? It was a yeah. week before the vote and it didn't swing it. That should have swung it. They should have called the referendum off at that point. Um, mm. And you know, had it another time. Or not. Yeah. We have about 10 minutes for questions. If you would like to ask, oh, we have many questions. Uh, the uh, roving mic will come to you. Uh, let's see, how should we, so let's start from over here. Uh, Mike's coming to you. Thank you. I just question your insistence that this was a democratic decision because I don't believe the people knew what they were voting for. Okay, you can question what is democracy. But if they had been told before the vote what it, what it would entail, I think it would have gone the other way. So I just question this 
it, the people voted, we have to stick to it. I think if there was another referendum, people would vote against it. Winston Churchill famously said the greatest argument against democracy is the conversation with, uh, with the average voter. I think that's almost a definition of democracy, is people don't really know what they're voting for. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why Socrates was killed by a democracy I mean, from the very ancient days. I mean, it's, it's not the perfect system, but I, I take your point. Yeah. But, I mean, I know what you we are where we are, we've just got to swallow the pill. Yeah, and I think forward. what Ed's saying is that once we've made a collective decision, we're bound by that process, and I participated in the Remain campaign, and I think if you participate in it, even if it doesn't go the way you want, you are bound by the outcome. And, and that really, that, that is a very, very important principle, is that, you know, you don't, it's, we're not, we're voting for a representative democracy, we're not voting, giving a mandate to people to do whatever the hell they want. And so if, you know, we may, they may not do what they said they were going to do, but we are bound by our votes. Otherwise it becomes, if you don't secede at first, not, you know, you keep yeah. trying, and that's not democracy. <laughs> your head your was point. up there. Thank you. Um, where does Jacob Rees-Mogg fit into all this? And if Brexit comes about, what are his aspirations and how will his influence affect what may, may happen? I heard him described recently as a haunted pencil, <laughs> which is a perfect description of him. Um, but he's a very minor character. He's a very minor um, person in the Conservative Party, isn't he? Not anymore. Really? Not anymore. Right. I think you'll find him up there in the top three uh, possibilities of replacing uh, Theresa May. Uh, at some point, he, he will be taken into the Cabinet if Theresa May lasts for another three or four years. I mean, he's popularly referred to as the minister for the 19th century. Just his demeanor. I mean, he's very proudly Etonian, but he's Catholic, so he's an outsider to some extent in the establishment. Um, right? I mean, that's the way it works. Well, yeah, but Toff yeah. Catholics are different than actual Catholics, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Toff is, is the correct word. Um, yeah. I mean, to be fair to Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's brought back a degree of civility in, in, in yes, public engagement. Yeah. He will go out and he doesn't believe in the safe space notion, notion that he will engage in debate. He will go out there mm -hmm. and he will campaign. And to be fair to him, that I mean, if, if you can put a stronger argument, he will concede ground. There's, there's a degree of mannerism there that I think has won over lots of people. But all that said, he's very hardline on, on Brexit and he's almost non-compromising in, in the sense that he wants to make Theresa May's job very difficult and therefore bring down the government. So I think beneath the veneer of this very uh, affable 19th century gentleman, top hat included, there is a, there, there is a very kind of subversive uh, operator there. Yeah. Up here. Uh, you, you talk about democracy, but I, I, the UK political system is completely dysfunctional. The, the um, Democratic Union Party, each MP, 10 of them, they got two and a half million votes. So there's 250,000 votes for a DUP MP. The Green Party got three million votes and got one MP. The whole first-past-the-post system of democracy in the UK has led to a system of ingratiating and party whips where people get safe seats. The question is, I, the question is, I don't believe it's, you're, you're, I'm questioning your stance, you're saying it's democracy. It's a dysfunctional democracy. The UK is just blasted with right-wing press, the Telegraph, give the me, Daily give Mail. Give me an example of a perfect democracy. 
Proportional representation. Ah, I see that's an agenda-driven question. So, okay, this well, is a different Democrats question. No, Belgium <laughs> recently has gone 100 days without uh, government because they, they have proportional representation and they could not decide on a government. And so the, the point about first-past-the-post, first this is a small law lecture. The point about first-past-the-post, the point about guilty or innocent um, and the adversarial system in courts is it gives you a clean answer. And it's not the best answer, it's not even always the right mm. answer, but it's clean and it's functional. And that's, 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 it's not just, no, I, I think you're right, I think you're right. But I think proportional representation, you can end up with Israel mm. where, you know, a rabbi in Brooklyn is deciding who runs the country because they have control over a tiny group of people. Um, I mean, I, I think both systems are really, really problematic. I think you're right because I think this, the DUP, the position of the DUP has highlighted how ludicrously small groups of people can completely swing the government. And I think Northern Ireland is going to break Brexit. I, I really do, because no one talks about it. No one cares about it. William Rees-Mogg said, you know, we're just going to have uh, border controls and armed guards, just like during the Troubles. No one cares about it. People are going to start dying. And I think that's, that's what's going to break Brexit. And I think that's going to lead to... You know, I take, I take your point, but I think all systems are problematic. Yeah. I think you're right. You're right. You're right. Up there. With the sunglasses. We're racing the clock, sorry. Um, I, we've got the uh, mic down here. You're... Are you saying the Reformation was the start of a glorious period in Britain's history? Because because I live in Glasgow and the Reformation is still going on in Glasgow and it's not glorious. Uh, but I think, I think what you're talking about is a long... I'm so, sorry, people can't really hear what you're saying. Yeah. Thank, you don't thanks have very the much. Mic. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Maybe we could talk just about wondering here. if the panelists agree that one of the um, destructive aspects of Brexit for Britain has been the fact that it's really diverted the politics and attention away from some really critical issues around health, education, homelessness, and so on. Sorry, Ed, I'm You're not absolutely I'm right. That Brexit has been a massive destruction. Mm -hmm. Distraction and destruction. <laughs> we, you know, we often wake up in the morning and it's Brexit again. We've got Brexit fatigue. Can we just get over this thing? Be done with it. And what's next? There, I, mean, uh, we, we, I mean, almost every day, every newspaper, and I mean, there's very little bandwidth now for much else. So you're, abs so you're absolutely right. It is. It is. Uh, it is. It's, it's part of the great distraction for government. And you know, the best of our civil servants are being put into this Brexit department. 
know, now civil servants who want a new career or a new move can't go into, say, the Foreign Office or the Ministry of Health or uh, Agriculture or, or, or Defense. It's all aggregated around the center. So as a nation, we've become much more insular. At a time, perhaps, we should be much more outward-looking. So you're absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask a show of hands, how many people, if they had the vote, would have voted for Brexit? Would, would have voted for Brexit? And leave? I'm oh, sorry, no, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> vote leave, leave. Okay, and remain? Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> Please come and live in our country. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful uh, speaking with, with you both, Ed and Denise. Um, Ed will be available uh, for signing uh, books at the signing table in the foyer after this. Uh, Denise has another workshop to go, but she will be signing after her session tomorrow morning, which ends at 11, I think. Um, and I want to thank them both very much for giving us their time. You, you are wonderful, and it's thank been you wonderful. Very much, David. Thank you. That was very interesting.